Hi, Amanda. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm wonderful. So would it be safe to assume that you went to, uh, or at least followed the news out coming out of uh, Google I.O.? It would be very safe to assume that. I had my own little watching or viewing party, rather, here in the San Francisco office. So I know nothing about what happened. Excellent. Figu- I figured I could just have you <laughs> yeah. come tell me about everything that happened at Google I.O. So this year's Google I.O. was from an Android developer's perspective, very exciting. Um, I think that a lot of people in the Android community feel, at least a lot of the developers feel the same way. I cannot speak to the marketing updates. I heard some rumors that a lot of the like hacker news or like TechCrunch kind of level of overviews about Google I.O. were kind of negative, saying that, you know, nothing really happened. It wasn't that exciting. Um, but that is the farthest thing from the truth on the developer side. This year was really about Google showing us that they listen and that they are hearing what we're saying and they're going to fix some of the issues that we've had for years. The biggest, I think, and most obvious exciting thing is Kotlin is officially a first-class supported language. So what does that mean exactly? That's a great question. I am actually not sure that I know the complete answer. I think I know what it doesn't mean. Um, it, it doesn't mean that they're going to rewrite Android Framework APIs, at least immediately in Kotlin. I think what it does mean is they're going to provide better support for nullability because Kotlin has nullable types and yep. Java doesn't. So at least updating the APIs to better expose when things can actually be null versus when they can't be. So when you call a Java function or method from Kotlin, does it just assume that all types are nullable across that boundary? It's smarter than that. It's not like, you know, it's not black or white. There are some areas where it's like, we think based on the code that this could be null, so we're going to just default to making it null. But there are some cases where you know it's not null, so you can maybe remove the type, uh, remove kind of the optional question mark. But it's not perfect yet. Um, they announced they're going to be partnering with JetBrains, who are the people both behind Android Studio and behind the language. So I think just more tooling and support is going to come there. In the new Android Studio release, it actually is bundled with Kotlin, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. The language right now is just a plugin. So now you get it for free before the rest of us had to set it up. So that's exciting. I don't know what else it means, though, to be totally honest with you, okay. other than like... It's now easier for you to talk to your PM and say, I want to write this in Kotlin. And they go, well, you know, what happens if Kotlin goes away? Now we have the support and backing of Google, which is great. Right. So that's probably the biggest advantage. Other than that, again, I think right now it's just tooling um, and them saying, don't worry, this is going to be here for a while. The language has actually been around, I think, longer than Swift. I don't know. It's only been stable, I think, for a year now. Mm -hmm. So people have had the opportunity to write it. It's 100% interoperable with Java. So if you wanted to have one class in your application that's Kotlin and everything else was Java, that would totally work. Mm -hmm. So that's good for new developers who want to start kind of learning it and bringing it over. I've seen a common pattern is, especially at product companies, is people writing their tests in Kotlin. So... That way, you don't have to talk to any PMs or any kind of management person because it's just about tests, which is nothing that like affects the pro. I mean, it affects the product obviously, but not in the same way that like UI code might. Sure. So that was the big announcement. Um, the other big announcement, which is something that I think is one of the big differences, in my opinion, between WWDC and Google I/O. At DubDub, first of all, it's a week, and Google I/O is normally only two or three days. And at DubDub, it's people from Apple actually get up on stage and tell you, hey, this is how we want you building apps. You can listen to it or not listen to it, but they're saying, we were the ones who designed the framework, and this is what we had in mind with how you would interact with these APIs, how you would write tests for this. We're not just trying to make your lives miserable for no reason. Like The framers have obviously more knowledge than we do, so sharing that is very helpful, and that's been a big component that's been missing from Google I.O., I think. And so... 
I think Google in general has also kind of always steered clear of like giving their opinions about like how to write things, Mm -hmm. um, which is very frustrating because you're like, there are a million ways to do this, but if I do it my way, sometimes I get into bugs or complicated issues, just maybe give us some direction. Right. The other two kind of problems historically is documentation and testing. The documentation is often bad if it's there at all. Um, so document, and that includes sample code. And then testing is sometimes just impossible because right. a lot of abstract classes or a lot of things that are packaged scopes, you can't test it on your end. And so this year they came out with, um, actually on top of all of that, one of the other issues that we've had for a long time in Android is life cycles. Managing life cycles is incredibly difficult. And as I think... Mm-hmm. The community has moved more towards um, reactive pro- functional reactive programming um, that exposes a lot of issues with the lifecycle. And because activities, you can't instantiate an activity, you just use other system calls to get from one activity to the next. So you mm-hmm. can't dependency injection has always been a problem. Um, and then you don't have therefore control of like when the activity is being destroyed. So there are callbacks, but it's complicated and there right. are issues. So making a network request, for example pretty basic thing that most Android apps do. When you rotate an Android phone just 90 degrees, it entirely, it destroys the activity and then recreates it. The reason being is that a lot of Android layouts are in XML. And so it needs the opportunity to reinflate the layout because you might have a separate layout for the rotated version. Or even if you don't, it still needs to basically, to ensure that it's all going to look the way you want it to look, they have to destroy it and then create it again. But then you have this like, especially if you're using reactive programming to make the request, you don't know where you are in the request. Do you make a new one just because it's been rotated? And because of states, you actually could lead to memory leaks depending on where you were making your calls. So all of that's been a mess. And so Google came out with this new concept or new framework, I guess, is a word for it called um, architecture components. And the architecture components are three new tools, uh, one called live data, one called um, lifecycle observables, essentially, and the third one called room. Um, room stands, I think this is a joke, I don't know if it's real, but it stood for room for improvement. And it's an ORM kind of wrapper around SQLite, which is another thing that's always been kind of bad for Android. Yeah. But the big news about all those three components is that the documentation is incredible. There is sample code, the sample code has tests. And so it's all just very exciting. And they're like real examples. I think the example in a lot of the code is showing if you wanted to get a location and then also make a request based on that location, which is complicated because of permissions. And, you know, it's just not your like classic to-do list app where you're like, okay, yeah, this would be great if my app did nothing except <laughs> have one list. So it was right. a more real world example, which is really helpful. Hmm. So is this going to be bundled through like... um Gosh, I don't remember the name of it. Like the support package, the thing that they shipped Fragment activity with before you could actually rely on Fragments being a thing that was on the phone? Yes. So um, the answer is eventually yes. Um, for now, it's a separate dependency. Um, and so there, some of the naming is even a little different for the moment. But eventually the plan is to release it as part of support library. Um, they're just not doing that yet because letting us all play with it, find any bugs um, before they release the stable version. But just it, li- but it does live independent of the operating system, so you can you can make use of it and yep. not have to target yep. whatever the latest API version is. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And so you can play with it now if you want. You can use it in one place, not use it in other places. Um, it's very nice. It basically handles if you want to think about like all the edge cases for you. So it's like we know that lifecycle is hard, so we're going to give you better, more helpful callbacks in the right places and manage the mess for you. Hmm. Just kind of nice. Nice. 
Yeah, because leading up to I.O., there were rumors about this, like, architecture talk, and they were like, we're going to release architecture to fix lifecycle problems. And it was kind of one of those, how? <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're thinking about the possible solutions, it's like, are you getting rid of life cycles? How would that work with backwards compatibility? So this is sort of a, a just a wrapper on top of it, which sounds not great, but looking at some of the sample code, the implementations, it is really very nice. Cool. Yeah. So do you think, like... I know part of the reason they dealt with weird life cycles originally was just to deal with memory pressure and not giving control of object creation because basically everything was getting recycled all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they're just starting to move away from that now that phones have caught up? Um, a little bit. I mean, it's all like all of that is still there. Um, and it was actually in the talk where they were announcing the life cycle components. It was interesting because. For the first time, they also kind of talked about their methodology and the thinking behind how they approach this problem. And one of the things that they said was like, we couldn't just rewrite it. That wasn't an option. Um, right, the, right. the founding and the framework of what we have so far, the beauty of it is that it works on so much different hardware. So changing the hardware APIs is pretty difficult. And at this point, not really a viable option. Mm -hmm. So some of that is good. And some of that, and like, not only is it not an option, but some of it works well. And like, obviously, I mean, there are 40,000 combinations of like hardware and software and Android, which is nuts. And so a small change would really, that would be impossible, I think. But right. so I think that that part actually is probably still the same. And even though phones are getting faster, I think they still want control over that stuff. They just realize that from the development perspective, it's a pain in the ass. And so they're going to help us with that Again, it's a layer on top of life cycles, which are not actually going anywhere. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So life cycles are dead. Long live life cycles. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're still around. They're just, we don't have to deal with them as directly right. anymore, which is very nice. And then uh, presumably they announced the new, uh, the new Android version? No, they don't do that yet. That happens oh. later. So it's still just O, but... We find out the name usually in the fall when the, like, when the API is kind of more complete because I think it's still in a developer preview. But, they, but, I mean, they announced the developer preview, right? Yeah, the developer like, preview actually came out a few months ago. Oh, okay. Yep. Shows how much I know. Yeah, no, not a, not a problem. Um, they started doing this. Last year was the first time they released the preview ahead of I.O. So they just have more time to have other people using it and basically testing it for them. Was there any uh, cool stuff in the... Uh, so what, would it be P? Uh, I, not to don't... be confused with the programming language from uh, <laughs> from Microsoft, apparently. Um, so we won't OP for another year. Okay. Oh, so it is O is the new version. Yeah, O is still the new version. It's just, it's still in preview. It'll come out probably in the fall is the final version. Is there any cool, crazy stuff coming in that? Um, yeah, there's some, it's one of those things where I think if you're an Android developer, you're like, oh my God, this is so exciting. I think to other people on other platforms, if you already have this, you're like, dear God, how have you been writing code this long? There are a lot of improvements to text view, which is very exciting things like making part of a text view um, linkable, making it so you can click on it or like have different color or syntax highlighting. Um, that's mm -hmm. been greatly improved, which is really exciting. As always, there's more um, improvements to notifications, which is not something that I deal with on a regular basis, but it seems like every year they're just improving and changing the notifications API. So mm -hmm. that stuff is exciting. Well, I mean, they're changing the UI on notifications every version, it seems like. Yeah. I think I had a tweet at one point that was joking that P was going to be no more Android. It was just notifications. <laughs> I mean, that is the direction they're moving is like just having your main your main venue for interacting with apps be through a 
their notifications directly. Yeah, and like layering permissions on top of how the notifications can look and making like the settings screen on Android super customizable. And that's one of those things when they release it, like the person on stage who's announcing it is always so excited and you're like, was this really a problem that anyone had? Like, I guess it's exciting, but it's a bit much. Yeah. Um, oh, the other exciting things are they're releasing an updated date API. So we don't have to keep using Java util date. Which oh, I so think, it's the, uh, the calendar class? Is that the updated one? No, it's a new, um, it's Java time, I think is the new name of the library. Oh, oh, is this like super, super new? Like yeah, Java this- 8? Uh, I don't or think Java it's. Nine? I don't think it's a tied to Java. I think it's an Android okay. API, um, which is gotcha. exciting. Yeah, because I remember Java uh, Util Date does weird stuff like having month be zero indexed, right? Yes. All the weird stuff that JavaScript inherited. Yep. This is where I got it from because like JavaScript has the fun one where get year uh, uh-huh. returns the two digit year rather than the four digit year, and so That's... now it's just a random three digit year where the third digit is always one. Oh my god! And then yeah. get month is also zero indexed. Yeah. So basically, dates in JavaScript don't work, and I think it's because dates in Java originally didn't work. Yeah, it's a mess. I think a lot of people, um, there's this Joda library um, that mm-hmm. a lot of people use, but it's a huge library. So taking it onto your Android application is definitely a decision. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this should help clean that up a little bit. And then the other thing, and I'm just going through my tweet history at this point, because sure. when I read it, in layouts, if you wanted to have padding or margins on both sides of the layout, either like on left and right or top and bottom, you had to declare, you know, top margin and bottom margin. And they added an attribute so you could just do vertical padding, vertical margins, or horizontal margins and padding. So Seems nice. It's the little stuff that really just makes the day a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. So do people still mostly write their layouts in XML? I think so. Um, I think that one of the things that Kotlin kind of brings with it is this library called Inco, which is also from JetBrains. And there's a bunch of different things that Inco can do. A lot of it is just kind of helper utility functions around standard Android stuff. So using some of the Kotlin features like inline functions and higher ordered functions and stuff like that are really nice. Um, but Inco also is um, has this DSL library. So you could theoretically write layouts as a DSL, which... I think you could have always really done it in Java, but it's not definitely the standard, I don't think. So maybe that'll change with Kotlin. I don't think so, but I don't know. Right. The benefit of XML is that you can have the IDEA render your layout and not have to execute arbitrary code in order to do that. Yeah. Um, And they improved the tooling a lot this year, too. Um, That's the other big announcement, especially like around designing. Um, There's new layouts that are a lot easier to use and therefore have forced them to kind of look at the IDE tooling, which is nice. This is, it's interesting. Uh, I'm just looking at the readme for Anko now, mm. and it, I just noticed that they also have some wrapper stuff around SQLite. It's yep. interesting now that that's two libraries that are a view library that also come with SQLite stuff. Yeah, so I think that, again, stuff like this is just all exists, and the reason there are so many of them is because... I mean, for as long as there's been Android development, we've had SQLite, but that's pretty terrible. And I think I, my favorite part of actually the talk where they were introducing Room, which is the new framework, was the first slide was a screenshot of the Android official documentation for using SQLite. And it just shows SQLite code, which is a mess and is like so right. incredibly verbose and has so much ceremony to it. And they were like, this is a problem. Like when you get to this page, it shouldn't be like, hey, let's terrify you. It should be like, this should be something simple to do. And so there's a reason why there are so many libraries out there that kind of were wrappers around SQLite. Yeah, no, we ended up adding a feature for Diesel, actually, mainly to support people who are trying to use it on Android. Yeah. 
because what was it SQLite database manager is the yeah. class I think database helper yeah yeah where you basically just have to provide your two functions uh, or your function where you get the two arguments the current version uh, of the database and the target version and you yeah. just have fun figuring out how to migrate that yourself yeah and so we ended up for diesel mainly with Android in mind ended up adding a thing where you can because uh, we have a rails like mm-hmm. migration infrastructure and we uh ended up adding a feature where you can then embed all of the migration files into your final binary so that way there's n- you don't have to have access to the file system or anything like that yeah and then just have the single function you call that's yeah you know write your write your migrations as separate sql files yeah then, and then run them and then run them and have all of the plumbing to, yeah uh, done for you yeah so room i think does something similar where they handle at least a lot of the migration for you which is also very nice um because I think the thing that people don't often realize about Android development is how many languages you have to know. So before Kotlin, you had to know Java. All of the build Gradle files are written in Groovy. So you have Java, mm-hmm. Groovy, XML as a language. And then if you wanted to do any database stuff, you really had to know SQL. Um, mm-hmm. So that's four languages, <laughs> which is a lot, especially for, I think, beginners. Um, so simplifying that is very helpful especially when you consider just like the average day in terms of context switching between all of those different languages just to work on a very simple feature is a pain yeah i mean it's very similar to web right yeah you got your back-end language you got your html you got your javascript you got your sql yeah that's that's fair so i think that a lot of these new modern languages are trying to solve for that so at least in android now you can the basic programming code is written in kotlin uh, you can write build scripts now. Um, Gradle integrates with Kotlin. So those like Groovy files can now all be written in Kotlin. So now huh. that's we've cut the number of languages in half, which is huge. So right. it's now just Kotlin, XML, and still SQLite a little bit. This is weird. It has you declare your database indexes as attributes of your class that represents a row in that table. Yeah, it's an OR. I mean, it's more of an ORM than anything. Room is. Are you looking at Room or Inco? Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at Room now. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. It's it's an ORM, which I think is attractive to Android developers in the sense that if you're building an application that interacts with like a REST API, you're going to model your model objects to match JSON objects. So you already kind of live in this world of thinking about your models in terms of these objects. So it's helpful mm-hmm. to be able to interact with your database that way as well. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see things like indices specified there because that's tip, you know, that, that's a thing that like an ORM generally doesn't need to know right. or care about other than for the purpose of migrating oh, yeah. schema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's not totally. I mean, it, again, it's just another wrapper on top, so still exposing right. things. I think if you want control, interesting, cool. Also, just given that there is a very very popular game series called The Room that is on mm-hmm. Android, yeah, seems like a poor choice of name for Google ability. Yeah, it's interesting. I, like I said, I think the joke was Room for Improvement, right. which is one of those haha the first time you hear it, and then you're like, this is so sad that this was the name you stuck with, <laughs> but it works. Yeah, yeah, I remember that was most people's reaction when when Microsoft announced P. Mm. <laughs> was a of all of the letters in the in the yep. alphabet. <laughs> Really, that's yeah. That's the one you're gonna you're gonna. <laughs> yeah, naming is hard. There was a there was a joke uh, on I think like Hacker News somewhere. It's just like I can't wait for a snow day so that I can come in the next day and tell everybody that during the day off I wrote hello world in P. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then also like that is not a Googleable uh, name. No, not at all. Yes, yeah, part of the um, architecture components library, um, they introduced this a new type called view models which are really more model models than view models but it's the thing that they want you to interact with the activity so it's the thing that is holding on to like 
whatever the network request is returning to you, if it's returning a list of cats, like it's the view model is really the list of cats. And at first I was like, dear God, the last thing the world needs is another definition for view models. So I guess this is okay. But to me, that was a really weird choice. Mm-hmm. especially since the definition that they now have for view models is like data. And I was like, that's exactly not what a view model right. is, but God bless. <laughs> Naming is hard. Yes. <laughs> well, an MVVM falls into that same category of things yeah. where just literally no, no two people have the same definition of what it actually means. Yep. I know with Rails, one of the things that always irks non-Rails people is that we call templates views. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that would be weird for me. Yeah. Oh, it's it's weird for everybody. Yeah. We don't have any actual notion of like a proper view in the classical OO manner in Rails. Yeah. It's all it's all just templates. That's so interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. So I um I'm very close to my grandmother and she had heard about Google I.O. you know, a week ago, read it and it was on the news. So she was asking me, you know, what kind of announcements, like what happened, what was the new news? And it's very easy to tell an 80 something year old woman about a hardware update. So like we have a new phone, it has a better camera because she knows what a camera is. She knows what a phone is. But trying yeah. to explain an architecture components library, all of the like the words that we think of from like a technical perspective have totally different meanings to her. And I was like, I don't even know how to explain to you what this is other than it's good and I'm happy. Right. <laughs> so I think that's where I left it because I was like, it helps with life cycles. But like, what is a light? Like it was it was too much. Yeah, I remember trying to explain to my mom what diesel does once. <laughs> It's just like it's it does things. Yeah, it does things. <laughs> yep, and I work on it. Yeah. It's funny. So there was no new hardware. Was there any any instances of somebody skydiving into, onto the stage? Uh, not to my knowledge, but I was only watching from the live stream, so they might have kept that off. I mean, well, then no wonder the yeah. media was thinks n- that nothing happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, hardware updates. Um, I don't also know where a lot of these kind of ways of releasing stuff to the media started, but it seems like both Google and Apple um, do this, where it's like you have your developer conference and then three months later you have a hardware conference. And so no, they don't all they don't do it at once. They really want to spread right. their media attention. So the hardware is, uh, happens in the fall. Gotcha. Um, there were some cool announcements, I think, on the software side too, to Google Assistant um, is now going to be, you can uh, use it on iPhones, which I don't know how that's going to work without competing with Siri, I guess, because you say a different, you know, starter phrase, hello, Google, as opposed to hello, Siri, or hey, Siri, and hey, Google. And a lot of the camera stuff uh, is really, really crazy. Crazy cool and also crazy scary. So if you use Google Photos, they there's unlimited storage because it means that they have all your pictures. So they have right. all the incentive to be like, totally give it to you for free because now we have all this data. Um, but they're doing really cool stuff with your images. So a lot of Google yeah. translation stuff is awesome. So if you're traveling, holding your phone over, you know, something written in a foreign language, it will translate it for you like on the screen, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. You can now like take pictures of buildings and it'll add like, oh, that's the I think the example is like, that's the tallest building in Chicago and like all these facts about it and like link you to get an Uber to go there and to all of this stuff. So I've just liked, you know, it has the burst photo function and they do all of their machine learning stuff to determine which of the burst photos is the best photo. And that works really, really damn well. Yes. Which, as somebody who takes far too many pictures of my baby. Yeah. That's probably my favorite feature on the phone. Yeah. And then I think even like the push notification saying like, hey, I've made an album for you. Do you want to share it? And then you can just like Mm -hmm. easily send it off to people. I think a lot of that stuff is really nice. Yeah. Um, Definitely seems to be built around the way people use their phones, which is awesome. 
Um, I did crack up a few weeks ago. I was searching for something, and and you know it has all of the different search functions. One of them being like search for you know by face. Yeah. And then it's started to do a thing like sometimes when you open the app, it'll be like, hey, you want to tell us the name of this face so that way you can search more easily. Yeah. And it popped up a few weeks ago with a picture of um. Uh, do you remember Marshall Codex? Did you ever work on that project? I didn't work on it, but I'm familiar with it. Very, very, very early on, we had this texture that was just like the word diffuse. Mm-hmm. Like the skin was bright purple and yep. the word diffuse was in like bright yellow written all over it. And then specular was applied as like, you know, you could see it like echoes of specular written all over because the specular map was written. There. Anyway, and so it shows me a picture of like the mesh with the yeah. debug uh, mm-hmm. textures on it. Like, hey, do you mind telling us who this, this is? Like, it's not a person. <laughs> That's really cool. I just thought, I thought that was funny. I have enough screenshots of weird rendering bugs that yeah. decided it's a yeah. it's an important enough person to name in my album. Yeah, there was a, a bunch of announcements also about machine learning, which is the farthest thing from my area of expertise that seemed really cool in terms of being able to leverage a lot of their general like kind of machine learning stuff and being able to access that from the web and from a lot of their other tools, which seems on the one hand terrifying, but also very cool. Um, and there were things showing like, with a pretty high level of accuracy being able to categorize images, which is one of the hardest things in image data. Like, is this a cat? Like, depending on your culture and all this other information. Is it a hot dog or is it not a hot dog? Right, yeah. Stuff like that is really difficult. And it seems like they're definitely one of the leaders in terms of, I guess, image recognition and machine learning software, which is really cool. So, yeah, I think that's my Google I.O. recap. Cool. Is there any other fun stuff going on in the Android world that isn't related to I.O.? I think people are still kind of just coming off of IO because it was so many different things that we've wanted for so long. Um, and I think for a lot of Android developers at product companies, now it's this, if you weren't already writing Kotlin, um, it's how do we start to integrate it? Um, you know, if management was like, you can't write it because it's not supported, that's now different. So it's a lot of people just starting to adapt the language very slowly. And, you know, there are bugs because it's a lot of different pieces. Um, it's the language, there's the tooling, there's testing framework. So it's kind of, all just going slowly, but I think everyone's still just excited, which is kind of fun. How's the testing story these days? Like, has there been any development there since, like, Espresso came out? Uh, yeah, so I think there are definitely improvements to Espresso testing. Um, it's actually really funny. Someone this morning just pinged me on, a like, a Trello research card about Espresso, and I was like, I don't know what this card is or why this is a thing, but I don't use Espresso. Um, I think that in Android architecture, a lot of the way people are writing apps is shifting towards MVP, which is, like, the popular buzzword in Android, which allows you to unit test things so you don't have to do kind of more view UI integration testing. Wait, MVP is standing for something other than minimum viable product? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> model view presenter. Okay. How is that different than MVVM? Great question. It doesn't use view models. Um, It uses view interfaces. So in Android, the way that it looks like is you can have, it's kind of funky in Android, I guess, but you have a presenter class, which essentially does all of your business logic. And every time it wants to make an update to the view, so change text, show text, it calls through a view interface. And then also the presenter will take in another interface that does all of your data fetching and caching and whatever. So what that means is you can write a test that says, you know, you know, when the activity is started, you can in your test create a presenter object and call, you know, presenter on start and then verify because both of them are interfaces, both where you're receiving the data from and what views you're updating. You can verify that, you know, when this set of data comes in, check that all the right view methods are being called. 
So it's just unit testing, which you can do with JUnit, which is really clean and easy and doesn't require any compatibility with Android, really. It's more of a Java testing framework. So that's what I do because UI testing was so bad on Android for so long. um, I think that's one of those things where about six months ago, I went back to using the Android emulators because for so mm-hmm. long they were just bad. And so I didn't even know that they had gotten better because I was just not using them. I was using a third party service. And at some point someone was like, they're actually better now. You can use them. I have not heard the same thing for UI testing yet. So I'm still not doing it. Right. I find that a lot of UI testing is difficult as well in terms of it just feels like I'm testing that like computers are computers and not actually testing kind of behaviors. And I can do the behavior testing in a unit test. So it sounds like you end up with pretty mock-heavy tests then at that point? Uh, mocks or fakes, yeah. But if they're all interfaces, it seems trustworthy at least. Do people still use... um? What's the Pivotal Labs uh, framework that, that people used to use? No, no, for testing Android applications. It like basically mocked out activities for you. Oh, I'm not sure. I guess people don't use it anymore then. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's po- I mean, it's possible... Um, I think there are definitely different problems you have in consulting than you would have at a product company. Um, I know that LinkedIn is like definitely always doing and blogging about really cool Android testing stuff. And a lot of the stuff they do focuses on like making sure their app is compatible and looks right in all languages. So they'll right. do a lot of you know UI tests to ensure that like in German, the little hello text fits on the screen isn't crazy or whatever. And in, I don't deal with a lot of that on the apps that I'm building because sure. a lot of what we do is MVP apps. So English is like... We build for internationalization, but most clients are like, it's fine. So it's funny because you're building your MVP yeah. using MVP. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Very meta. Oh, yeah. Let me look up the name of that library really fast. Yeah. I'm curious. Roboelectric. Yes. I still use Roboelectric. Okay. And that more has to do with, again, because a lot of um, Android resources come in XML files. So like all your strings, um, all your layouts, colors, things like that. Even in a unit test, you might need to mock context, which I like to think of as just like juice or battery life for an Android app. So Roboelectric can help you um, create a context in your tests. Right. Which is nice. Yeah. So it sounds like things are, I don't know, haven't changed drastically in that world, but are slowly improving as they do. Yeah, I think so, which is good. I think it's hard in general for, and I feel like I've talked about this definitely before, um, in general with frameworks, testing is hard because on the one hand, you want to trust that they've written, like the, the framework they've written is well tested. So, how much are you testing your actual code versus just your code's interaction with the framework? You know, like if I call set sure. text on a text view, do I really need to assert that like the text is shown? Because like it feels like someone at Google's written that test and I should be able to believe that that's well, going to happen. Yeah, but I mean, it's no different, right? I, I sort of compare it to testing with Capybara in the web world. Like, we mm. don't need to test that a paragraph tag results in the text being shown. Like, the, right. we know the browsers do that, but right. the, that's still the most convenient way usually to test your interaction with that with those APIs is just by... Well, and ultimately, the only way to, to truly verify that you're interacting with all of the various APIs in all the right places in all the right yeah. ways to make sure that whatever get, yeah. is finally rendered on the screen has whatever you expected there to be. Yeah, and so that's the layer, like, so basically, like, the way that in model view presenter Android apps, what you say is, like, you know, you call on the view interface show title, and so they're, like, in my applications, I don't have a test that confirms that I'm actually taking that string title and calling set text on the right text view. So it assumes some level of, like, the developer is calling this on the right view, um, which a UI test would definitely solve for and help. Right. But at some point, I just decide that I'm not an idiot, which I realize isn't the point of testing, but... You know, you assure that it's the right text and that you've at least seen it on a phone. But yeah. 
Right. I don't know. I still dream of the day where black box UI testing will be as easy in mobile as it is for web because it's a really well solved problem in web and it's yeah as best i can tell on both platforms and mobile pretty not fun yep the other big announcement um which seems kind of related um i think you know the problems is running the test on all the different devices and all the different configurations which is why it's so difficult a big pain with the android emulator um which is a problem only on android is android devices have uh google play services which is how you are able to interact with most APIs. So it's basically the Google's API with the hardware. So how you get location, how you get, I mean, the actual app store or the play store rather, Um, but emulators didn't have it. And so if you wanted to test, you know, things that you only got through play services like maps, you like really couldn't, which is another reason why you were using third party um, emulators. But now the Google provided emulator has play services, which is very, very exciting. Good. Yeah. Yeah. You can use Surprising maps. Surprising that it took them that long. Yeah, and it's it's cool because you can download your app now through the Play Store on your like test devices, which you couldn't do before, which is insane. Hmm. So, much improved. Cool. You want to wrap up? Yeah, sure. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 112. As always, ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, leave a comment on the show notes, or tweet us at underscore bikeshed. Thank you so much. 